if we look at the Bible, and if we look at other historic accounts, and even listen to each other giving testimonies, we know that God is all of those things. There's 19 different truths there. And maybe if you look at them, you'll think, oh, yes, that's true, that's true, that's true. You're looking at them and thinking, I know God is like that in my life. So I've got a question for you, because you know I ask questions galore, because I ask myself questions regularly. So why should I be the only one who asks questions to myself? I want to ask you some questions as well. Do you think that God becomes more amazing as we mature in the Christian faith? Well, we've got a difference of opinion here. So some people are saying, yes, God becomes more amazing and you're nodding your head very strongly, not being British at all, which is wonderful, isn't it? And some people are saying, hang on, that's a really daft question to ask. But surely, like, if we were going to put a, uh, do a graph with a, a line one way and a line the other axis, I think they're called, aren't they? With the brilliance of God and the majesty of God on one and the years we've been a Christian, surely, when we hit 50 years of being a Christian, we've made it. Because surely our knowing God just increases like this all the time. You can shake your head if you want to. It's not like that at all, is it? I didn't prime Jill because I don't do that sort of thing. But it's true. God's brilliance and character has nothing to do with our circumstances, our perspective, our age, how long we've been a Christian, where we live, what we're doing. Because God is God. I love little mathematical symbols. Here's one. Do you remember what it's called? Infinity. Brilliant. Do you remember? I put 144 up there. But here it is. And I've missed a bit of the line out. And God's way above what we can measure. Our biggest scale, our biggest measurement can't cope with God. Because God is so way above what we can do, think, or even dream about, that he is way at the top. Can you see the dotted horizontal line there? That's God way up there in in infinity. So it's got nothing to do. He has got nothing to do with what we're feeling like, what we're doing, whether things are going well, whether things are hard. God is up there. I want to read a scripture to you. It's wonderful. You've heard me say this before because you've heard other people say it. This is John 3.16 and 17 from the Amplified Bible telling us about God's brilliance and love and generosity. For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave up his only begotten unique son so that whoever believes in, trusts in, clings to, relies on him shall not perish, come to destruction, be lost, but have eternal, everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world in order to judge, to reject, to condemn, to pass sentence on the world, but that the world might find salvation and be made safe and sound through him. Does that prove God's brilliance and love and generosity to all of us? I might as well give you another scripture as well, just to really overprove it, maybe. How about this from Romans chapter 5? Uh, J.B. Phillips this time. 
And we can see that it was while we were powerless to help ourselves that Christ died for sinful men. In human experience, it is a rare thing for one man to give his life for another, even if the latter be a good man, though there have been a few who have had the courage to do it. Yet, the proof of God's amazing love is this, that it was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. God is amazing, generous, loving. I put a word there that maybe you looked at. I'm just going backwards. There, loveful. I think God is loveful. I know it's not a proper word, but I just thought, I want to say God is loveful, as well as all of these. He's full of love. Just says it in a, a small way. So what I want us to do to think about is not just those two scriptures, but to think about how they relate to a certain group of people. Over the last few weeks in July and August, we've been looking at different parts of our family that lived around the Mediterranean, that lived in Germany, in this country. And this morning, we're going to look at parts of our family across the generations, across the continents, and we're looking at how did our brilliant and majestic and faithful, all those brilliant things about God, his unchangingness, how did he react or interact rather with them? And how did the members of our family from previous generations reciprocate with God? This morning, we're looking at North America and we're thinking especially about sinners in their hands, it says. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. For many people, if you mention North America, they might think of Hollywood or they might think of fast food or big cars, or gun crime, or having a large armed forces which seem to think it's okay to go to different countries and uh, make their presence felt, shall we say, around the world. But as well as all those things, North America has a tremendous Christian heritage from the last few centuries, and we're going to be looking at that heritage this morning in a, in a brief way. How did people from that part of the world interact with God? What can we learn from them? And we're going to look at the 18th, the 19th, and the 20th centuries. But let's get some context, first of all, because I know you all know where North America is, but the thing is, perhaps you're not so sure about some of the dates, so let's just briefly think about that. There were people living in North America before the first Europeans settled there in 1565. You might have heard of the Mayflower. Do you remember who sailed on the Mayflower? The Pilgrim Fathers, or the Pilgrims as well they're called. So they set sail in 1620, and there was over a hundred of them. Perhaps you're not so sure that a group of about 400 Protestants that lived in this country were being persecuted in this country. So they went over to Holland, but then it was a hundred or so of those because they were still being persecuted in Holland, that went over to North America. So they started these pilgrims in this country. They went to Holland, and then they went to North America after that. It took 10 weeks to cross the Atlantic, and things weren't easy for them when they arrived. Half of them, within six months, had died because of bad weather and disease. But remember, they went first to Holland and then to North America, because they wanted to worship God. They wanted to serve God. And where they were in this country 
they felt they couldn't do that. So they took a dangerous journey, an unknown journey, in order to do what God, they felt, what God wanted them to do. 1776, 4th of July, America declared independence from us. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, their dates we'll definitely come back to in a few minutes. Uh, 1917, they got involved in the First World War, and then 1941, they got involved in the Second World War. So there's just a few dates just to get us thinking about. But let's look at the Christian heritage then. The 18th century then, the 1700s, there was this thing called the First Great Awakening, and that happened in the 1730s and the 1740s. You might have heard of this already in similar events where God touches people and they say, I'm not living my life enough for God at the moment. I want to strive. I want to do more for God. I need to be more holy. I need to be more devoted to God with reading my Bible and praying and talking to other people about him. John Wesley and George Whitfield. Now, of course, you think about them as being British people involved in this country, but both of them went over to America. John Wesley only for a year and nine months, but George Whitfield went seven times to and fro from this country to America. Do you remember how hard it was to get to America? Concord hadn't been invented. No planes had been invented. It took weeks and weeks and weeks to get from this country over there. But they heard God say, I want you to go and speak for me over the other side of the ocean. And that's what they did. George Whitfield, as he was sort of in the last few weeks of his life, he was still preaching. There was something that he said that I find amazing. I would rather wear out than rust out. I would rather, rather wear out than rust out. Oh, that challenges me. Does it challenge you not to just think, oh, I'll just sit down and not do so much? Because as we get older, I'm finding it. Did you notice I was sitting down earlier? As I'm getting older, I'm sitting down a bit more. But I want to wear out for God rather than rust out and just, just give up. We're not giver-uppers, are we? We're doers for God as well as beings for God. But these weren't the only people. Jonathan Edwards is perhaps the most important person when you think about the First Great Awakening. And he was a preacher, evangelist, and theologian. And he wrote uh, a sermon that uh, he called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've written there a sermon first read because he was the type of person that would read word for word and then just occasionally look up to make sure no one had gone asleep or something. But, do you know, he was a reader, so he was just reading what he was saying word for word verbatim. He wasn't getting people's eye contact and things like I try and do. He was a lot more looking there and just occasionally looking up. God worked powerfully through him. Because it's not the style of preaching that matters, it's the Holy Spirit working through the preacher and working through all of us that are listening and saying, yes, Lord, what are you saying to me now? So I want to encourage you, whether someone's just reading and you're finding it difficult, or it's someone like me and you find that equally as difficult, because I know some people do, listen to God and say, Lord, what are you saying to me today? 
how can I hear from you? What are you saying? On the 12th of January, uh, 1723, he made a commitment to God. And he said, I'm making a solemn declaration of myself to God, giving up myself and all that I had to God to be for the future, in no respect my own, to act as one that had no right to be himself in any respect. All he was saying is, I've got nothing. I am no one without Jesus. I'm giving my all to him. If he uses me, brilliant. If he just casts me to one side and uses someone else, brilliant. I am God's servant. He can use me as he wants to. He lived in a place called Northampton, not the one where they made shoes a few years ago, but the one in Massachusetts. And we'll look at a map in a few minutes, just thinking about where he was. He was prayed for by George Whitfield and talking about his way of preaching again. After a while, he stopped reading word for word and then just looking up now and again. And he did start to make notes and he found that was an easier thing to do. But let's look at his message. Remember, sinners in the hands of an angry God. This was his message. Hebrews 9.27. Everyone has to die once and then to face the consequences. Can you see this Greek word? You know it. You know this Greek word. Crisis. Or as we might say in this country, crisis. Everyone has to die once and then to face the crisis. Crisis, to separate, judge, distinguish. It's a decision. And more importantly, this Greek word is saying it's the results due to that decision. So whoever wrote the book of Hebrews is saying everyone's going to die, and then however they follow God or not, they'll face the consequences, the crisis of how they decided to follow God or not. Because I don't think when we face God, he's going to say, did you ever sin? God knows we all sinned, and we know we all sinned. So I don't think God is going to say, Debbie, did you sin when you were alive down on earth? Not to go into finer detail, I bet Debbie has sinned a little bit. Have you, Debbie? Yes, excellent. Well, not excellent, sorry. (laughs) But God is going to say, what did you think about Jesus? Did you give your life to Jesus? Did you obey him? Did you do what he said? Follow his commands, follow his life? Or did you go your own way? See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we all are. Both of these truths are equally important to Jonathan Edwards. But sinners in the hand of an angry God, most of you have seen my six million dollar man in the past. I loved him. As you can see, he hasn't got an arm, he hasn't got a shoe. I've played with him a lot in the 1970s. But it just reminds me, Sinners in the hand of an angry God. My Steve Austin is in my hands. And if he was not doing what I wanted or what you wanted, what would be the easiest thing to do? Sort him out. 
put him away. Wouldn't that be the easiest thing to do? To start again, if you're a potter, I'm not, but maybe some of you are, and something goes a bit wrong with your wheel, the, the thing on the wheel, what happens? Probably you think, oh, I can't do much with that, I'm going to start again. God lavished his love on us. He didn't say, I'm just going to put you in, bag, in a bag and forget about you. God says, I love you enough to continue to love you, even though you are not following me. But I want you to follow me. I want you to know me. And that was Jonathan Edwards' message. Damnation and hell doesn't need to be our final destination. That's what Jonathan Edwards was saying. And that's what we're still saying. This is where Northampton is, right on the eastern edge. But there's someone else I want to briefly talk about in the 18th century who worked in the eastern Pennsylvania uh, area and in New Jersey. And his name was David Brainard. And you may have heard of him or may not, but he was expelled from university. Jonathan Edwards said he was expelled from university because he, he had an intemperate and indiscreet zeal for God. So in other words, he was a bit fiery and wanted people to know God and, and told people about God a lot. Some of these organisations I hadn't really heard of. The Scottish Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge, they wanted him to be a missionary to a group of Indian tribes in Eastern America. He had a difficult life because he did what God said and he wouldn't sort of take the easy life. He wouldn't go and be a minister in a church. God had called him to speak to the Indians, so that's where he stayed. But by the age of 29, he died. And he died in Jonathan Edwards' home. Because over the last few months, he died of tuberculosis. Over the last few months, he was getting weaker and weaker. And so he couldn't be with the uh, group of Indians anymore. But he came in and found help from people that knew him quite well. And there was one person who nursed him in those last few months. And that was Jonathan Edwards' 17-year-old daughter, her name was Jerusha. Four months after he died, she also died from TB. Can you imagine what Jonathan Edwards, this great man of God who'd seen people by their thousand coming to know him, felt like? He'd taken this wonderful man of God into his house because he was ill. His daughter nursed him. And then she too died of TB after just a few months of uh, nursing this man. A lot of the people we're talking about today didn't have an easy life. And I might not say all the details because there's lots more to say than give you all the details, but it's all on the internet. Or if you, want to, if you haven't got the internet at home or something, then you can always say, oh, tell me a bit more about him. And I certainly would do. In the 19th century, there was just this, this, this gentleman called Charles Finney, and he was one of the leaders of the Second Great Awakening in America. He led revivals and, uh, and really uh, talked about the Bible and people need to be converted, and when they are converted, they need to definitely, on a daily basis, be following God 
and not just be saying, oh, okay, I'm a Christian, that's it. But daily, day by day, giving everything to God. One person wrote this. He, was, uh, he got converted in New York. The whole community was stirred. Religion was a topic of conversation in the house, in the shop, in the office, and on the street. The only theatre in the city was converted into a livery stable. The only circus into a soap and candle factory. Grog shops were closed. Apparently, they sold, uh, sold rather alcohol. So uh, alcoholic shops were closed. The Sabbath was honoured. The sanctuaries were thronged with happy worshippers. A new impulse was given to every philanthropic enterprise. The fountains of benevolence were opened and men lived to the good. This was God working through Charles Finney that it wasn't just a few people getting converted, but it was the social life of a big city like New York that was changing because of him. He had a hard life. He was widowed twice. Let's think about two other people from the 19th century. D.L. Moody, you might have heard of him. He was based in America, but he didn't spend all his time in America. The quote at the top, again, challenges me. It might challenge you. Faith makes all things possible. Love makes all things easy. He was converted in Boston, and the large church that he founded in Chicago was totally destroyed in 1871. I think about those places in Hawaii and other places at the moment where fires have gone through. It's not the first time that's happened. 1871, Chicago, it was annihilated almost. Lots of things were destroyed. So what did he do? He started building up the things in Chicago again. But he came over here, D.L. Moody, and he came the length and the breadth of this country, as well as Canada and America and, and Scotland. But he didn't come on his own, because he was a great preacher, but he realised that if he came on his own, other people would need to lead the service, like have songs and worship and hymns and things. So can you remember his, uh, his, his friend that came with him? Sankey, Ira Sankey, and he was a brilliant singer, and so he would accompany himself singing both outside and inside, and thousands of people came to faith through the ministry of Moody and Sankey in the 19th century in this country, and I've put that over 50 million of his songbooks were sold, 50 million even in those days, 50 million, that's a lot. The thing that I've read about them is when they came over to this country, they had a strange accent because they're from America. And so people with strange accents, would you welcome them into your church? They're from a different country. They've got a bit of a strange accent. Would you say, come on in and come and tell people about Jesus? Or would you just say, no, just, just we don't want to have you thank you and that's what happened a lot but after a few days of them preaching outside talking about Jesus the ministers of every town or most towns that they visited would hear of what was going on and then after a few days when Moody and Sankey went on to the next town 
the ministers were sad because they'd said, no, don't come to our churches. But then they carried on and speaking to thousands of people outside and later on in church buildings as well and bigger buildings. And they would have been sad because they saw the work that God was doing through them. Both of them were involved in the Civil War, the American Civil War. Sankey actually was part of the forces, but Moody was a conscientious objector and was a relief worker. He didn't want to shoot anyone dead. And so both of them would have seen what was going on in the Civil War. That couldn't have been so good. You can see pictures, photos, can't you, of the Civil War as well as later wars. People involved on the front line would have seen all kind of manner of things. But let's carry on in our TARDIS. Let's go to the 20th century. If you've been to uh, Los Angeles, you might have heard of Azusa Street because this was a, a church in Los Angeles where a, a revival in this century uh, occurred. No, last century. I'm getting older. As you realize, we're already 23 years into this century or 22 years, and I'm thinking that this century is last century. Anyway, do you ever do the same? Yeah. Okay. Thanks for the, uh, the help there. But yeah, in the last century, there was a tremendous revival in Los Angeles. It was the start of the Pentecostal movement, which spread around the world. People speaking in tongues and healing, being convicted of sin. Many people, again, got converted and it led to some of these people becoming Christians. And some of these people you will know really well. Uh, Tozer, Ravenhill, Graham, Luther King Jr., Wilkerson, Peterson, Wimber, Willard, and uh, McPherson as well, St. Paul McPherson. All of these people, we could just talk about for 10 or 15 minutes each, ever so easily, because all of them listened to God and said, Lord, you are brilliant, you are awesome. All these things we were thinking about earlier, what can I do? you how will you lead me what will you do I don't know if you noticed but on nearly every slide there's been a picture of the Statute of Liberty it was dedicated and unveiled in 1886 on an island near New York but you're probably aware because all of you like me are enjoying trivia and you know all kinds of things this is trivia it's not really called the Statue of Liberty, is it? Can you remember what it's called? Say it again. No idea. Uh, no idea. <laughs> that, that would work, wouldn't it? Shall I tell you what it's called? The real name for the Statue of Liberty is Liberty Enlightening the World. Liberty Enlightening the World. I want to say something categorical. True liberty doesn't come from any government or free market economy, economies or taking drugs or having guns or going to America or any other country. True liberty only comes from knowing the God who is like this. True liberty in our lives only comes from knowing the God who is a disturber, who is all-powerful, who is loveful. There's that word. Faithful, merciful, holy, incomparable. All of these things God is. Those people we've met, and we could have talked a lot more about loads of other people, 
all of those we've met knew this God who is of infinity, who's, who's, we can't measure because he is so great and so wonderful. He loves us tremendously and he loves all the people of the world. The people we see around us and we're blessed because I can see plenty of people from different nations here that were either born in a different nation or grew up in a different nation. We're fabulously blessed here because we can look out, we can look at a big map, we can look at flags, we can talk to people that make us think less insular. God is still like all of that. Our lives might change, but God remains faithful. God remains merciful. God remains omniscient. God remains omnipotent. How will we respond to that God today? We need to recognize who God is. And as I've been preparing, I've been thinking, Lord, I'm selling you short again in my life. I've made you smaller, much smaller than you really are. Lord, will you help me again to see who you are, to see how big and enormous and dynamic and beautiful you are, more than I'll ever know. Help me, Lord, to be like that. And let's pray that for each other and for our families and our friends, whether they, they know God at the moment or not. Lord, we want to know you more. And we want people to know you more too. So I'm going to pray and then we'll perhaps have a time of uh, thinking about these things, responding. Sinjin and Young Chu are going to come and tell us a bit about what they're doing as well in a little while so we can hear some news from them. But where we are, what we're doing, are we saying, Lord, you are marvellous and faithful and loving and kind and you're still changing my life? So, Lord, thank you for the way you've changed our lives in the past. We do say thank you. You are the one. There is no other. You must increase and increase in our lives and we must decrease and decrease. Thank you, Lord, for the examples we've briefly looked at this morning of people in different centuries in another continent following you, even when times were tough for them. They put you first and said, all for God. Lord, help us to say the same things as well. All for you, Lord. Amen.